0: and welcome back to another episode of Nature in a Nutshell, the podcast which breaks down the latest ecology and environmental news. My name's Sophie and I'm the Marketing Officer at SAIM, the Chartered Institute of Ecology and Environmental Management. And today we're switching things up as I'm joined by my two colleagues, Douglas and Mark, who is kindly filling in for Jason today. They will be explaining the big news items from the past month that are affecting people and nature.
1: Hi, I'm Douglas. I'm SAEM's policy officer. I'm Mark. I'm head of professional practice.
0: And Mark, do you want to maybe tell the listeners a little bit about you and your background and your role at SIEM?
2: Sure, thank you. Yeah, it's great to be here. So I think I'm still the new boy at SIEM. So I joined earlier this year in February. And my team here is responsible for professional standards and professional development. So basically making sure that ecologists and environmental managers have got the resources and the support that they need to be ambitious for nature and also for themselves. I did my own ecology degree in the mid to late 90s, and since then I've done some research into habitat creation and soil formation, and I've written and taught on various different environmental courses, particularly in colleges and universities.
0: So today we've got quite a jam-packed episode, thanks to recent news and developments from the government. Doug, what are we covering in today's episode?
1: Yeah, so today we'll be talking about uh, delays to biodiversity net gain, the State of Nature Report and nutrient neutrality.
0: Well, let's kick things off first with the delay to biodiversity net gain, because it's all we've been talking about this week. And it also follows on quite nicely from our previous episode with Dr. Julia Baker.
1: Yeah, so this couple of days now from when we're recording, but the UK government announced they were going to delay the implementation of biodiversity net gains, that's BNG. And that was due to become a mandatory component of the planning system in England this November. So this is an England centric policy, other countries are developing alternatives and sort of seeing how this process goes. The updated timetable that was set up by the government now will require developers to deliver 10% BNG from January 2024. So While it's a couple of months, it's not sort of a massive shift. This is still quite impactful because obviously developers, planners, ecologists have all been gearing up for this to be coming into place in November. So lots of things will now have to be pushed back down the pipeline. It also means we have another three months where nature is more on the back foot. It's not, I guess, as much of a priority as it will be when BNG comes in. So this is still really impactful, even if it's only maybe a three-month delay. But to try and sort of alleviate some of the uncertainty surrounding BNG following this delay, the government have committed to publishing all guidance and regulations relating to BNG by the end of November. So this includes the statutory biodiversity metric. So this is critical for calculating the correct biodiversity gain. The draft biodiversity gain plan timetable, which will help developers prepare for what they will need to complete during the planning application stages the habitat management and monitoring plan template. So this sets out how the improved, significant on-site habitats we manage for the long-term, sort of the longevity of projects. And then a package of BNG guidance that sort of is about advice for landowners, developers, local planning authorities around what their role and responsibility is in delivering BNG. Obviously, this is good that more advice and guidance is coming out. This has been one of the big criticisms and complaints by lots of groups that You know, this was due to come in place in November, and they didn't have all the information which they really need to have. The information, you know, this is it's kind of important. You know what you're doing when you're going into it. Generally, the delay has not been welcomed by environmental groups, in particular, many sort of consider it to be unnecessary and very damaging to the government's own ability to meet targets associated with its 25 year environment plan and all the local nature recovery strategies of which BNG is a, I guess, a flagship component. So. There is still concern that BNG would be pushed back even further. So it's, I guess, a silver lining that it's still coming in place in January and it'll be starting off the new year. So yeah, really, it's just sort of a watch this space situation. Not many people saw this coming. This came up really quickly and sort of out of nowhere. So it really blindsided a lot of people. And here's hoping it just sort of sticks to that January date and more information comes out about it, really.
0: Yeah. And am I right in thinking that a lot of people found out from the BBC News article?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean. The government hadn't actually released any information. It was, a, it was someone who talked to the BBC in the BBC article. And it wasn't until, I think, later that day, maybe you know, a good 12, well, maybe eight hours after that BBC article, the government finally um, announced something. So it was a real day of uncertainty. Yeah, we were all sort of furiously emailing, saying, what's going on? The BBC have got this. Where have they got it from? Yeah, I, that seems to be a bit of a trend at the moment with the government either trying to slide things under the radar or announcing things out of the blue or you know, Rishi Sunak not turning up to a climate conference in New York and not telling on he wouldn't turn up and then just not being there. So there's, yeah, there's lots of things going on.
0: Very interesting. It makes for an interesting episode anyway.
1: It does. Yeah, it makes for an interesting and topical one.
0: Okay, well, let's move on to the State of Nature report then as well.
1: Yeah, so this is uh, still with me. Many of us over the past week will have seen the sort of the government's decision to really roll back, I guess, what they're terming often as the green agenda. So the UK is now pushing back the deadline for the sale of new petrol and diesel cars. And they're also approving the development of the largest untapped oil field in the North Sea, Rosebank. So, I mean, this is really contrary, I guess, to what the government's previous credentials have been. I mean, this conservative government, as sort of termed before, claimed itself to be the greenest government ever. When Rishi Sunak came in, he pledged to make some huge sort of changes to net zero or at least continue the trend. And these changes really aren't that, you know, these are massively impactful, particularly in very different sectors. So the sale of new petrol and diesel cars, although seemingly, well, that'll be good, you know, more sales, more money coming in. The industry has already started to move towards electronic vehicles and sort of to incorporating new charging stations and all this sort of thing. And so this, they've already developed these plans. So throwing this spanner into the works, it will cost, you know, millions and millions of pounds in terms of having to adapt what you're doing, all these changes. So the amount of uncertainty this creates is massive. And the Rosebank oil field has been met with huge amount of condemnation sort of across sectors. I mean, obviously, the green sector is very against it, but lots of different sectors. And it's estimated that sort of all of the production of the Rosebank sort of oil field, this massive oil field in the North Sea, which is about 300 million plus barrels of oil, would be the equivalent to the annual emissions around 90 countries and about 400 million people. So that's many times the population of the UK. So it's really a question of why. So many places, and the UK in particular, are making huge strides forwards in renewable technology. And it seems very backwards just to suddenly now start drilling for oil in the North Sea to start a huge project for it. It's really disheartening to see this. And it's really disheartening to see such a big project coming into it. And there's lots of arguments about how much money will actually be made from it. I mean, it's a Norwegian company. So there's a lot of uncertainty, really. And almost prophetically, I guess at the same time this was all coming out and all these rollbacks were happening, the State of Nature report was released by the sort of State of Nature Partnership. This was published for the UK, and it contained some pretty sobering figures concerning our wildlife. So this is a report that uses huge amounts of available data, the most recent data, and sort of stretches back about 50 years in terms of the data they're using, so back to the 1970s. They work with loads of different partnerships, things like Back Conservation Trust, RSPB, uh, Amphibian and Wildlife Trust, so loads of different sort of UK trusts, but also overseas territories and crown dependencies. And they found that in the UK, species studied have declined by an average of 19% since 1970, that nearly one in six species are threatened with extinction in Great Britain, that 151 of the sort of 10,000 species examined had already become extinct since 1500s and that invertebrates are being found in about 13% fewer places now than in 1970. So these are just some headlines. There's plenty on things like pollinating plants have reduced by about 54%. And I guess it's a bit nebulous and a bit difficult to get a handle on how significant these numbers are. I mean, 19% might not seem a lot, but it's all resulted in the UK being one of the most nature-depleted countries on earth. And this is sort of primarily caused by Massive intensification of agriculture on land, so we've really seen a huge amount of changing land use. Habitats have become incredibly restricted; they become incredibly fragmented. And this sort of trend has continued. And this is sort of along with climate change, which is causing major changes to land and sea, uh, population range shifts, all this sort of thing. But you know, our total farming productivity has continued to increase, and the sort of the volume of fertilizer peaked in the 1980s and hasn't really has levelled off a bit, but is still very high. And in the marine world, it's fully sort of it's fishing, it's over exploitation. So the State of Nature Report lays these all out. It's a fantastic report. I absolutely say everyone go and read it. It's really well laid out. They put the causes, they've got why the decline is happening, how much decline has happened. It's an incredible piece of work. And it really is quite sobering. As with a lot of these things, there is always an uptick. I think really for me what was sort of they put some really key conservation actions and they were very, very Keen to highlight that there have been some real achievements in conservation, and none of these things are other than the extinctions, not reversible. You know, we can turn back the clock on these sorts of things. So, a couple of those sort of nice highlights, I guess, which are uh, things like large-scale restoration projects, such as the Cairngorms Connect, have really helped to build and benefit many woodland-dependent species. Natterjack toad populations have stabilised or expanded at sites where conservation management has been well resourced. So. We have the tools, we can do these things. We have the expertise, we've got the knowledge, we can make conservation work and species can thrive. But it's about getting those projects in place, it's about getting the funding and the protection and longevity. I guess a really interesting time for a report like this to be published when the current government is really rolling back its sort of green agenda. I think it's really important that they announced and published it now because it really helps to sort of highlight that comparison.
0: Thanks, Doug. We will put a link in the show notes to the State of Nature report if you want to go read it. Uh, We'll move on to our next topic then. So there's been a lot in the news recently about the government trying to weaken environmental protection given to rivers. So Mark, can you tell us a bit more about what's been happening?
2: Sure. I'm going to attempt to tackle nutrient neutrality and explain where we've got to given the recent shenanigans that we're seeing in government. So perhaps it's easiest to start with the symptoms of nutrient pollution and then go on and try and talk about some of the causes and you know and what this legislation was designed to achieve. So the symptoms really are the unfavorable condition of our watery protected sites, so our special areas of conservation and sites with internationally important Ramsar designation, places like the Norfolk Broads, Somerset levels, and the globally rare chalk streams that we have here in Hampshire. And many of these places are in poor condition because of excess nutrients in freshwater. We're talking particularly about nitrogen, N, and phosphorus, P, and these cause changes to the relative abundance of different species and reduce biodiversity in the types of environment that we're talking about. So, you may have heard the word eutrophication before, which is the excessive growth of algae and plants. They respond really strongly to those high levels of nutrients you get a boom in their biomass, you get algal blooms being produced. And then when those plants and algae die and decompose, they lock up oxygen in the water through that microbial decomposition. And that lowering of oxygen in the water body can have knock-on effects on other species like invertebrates, fish and birds. And it also affects our own well-being. So reducing our ability to access and enjoy nature through activities like swimming and kayaking and angling. And it increases the costs associated with water abstraction and purification.
0: We hear a lot about spills of sewage around the coast and into our rivers. So is this the cause?
2: Partly it is, but it's not the whole cause. So sewage contains lots of substances that we are concerned about, including bacteria that can cause harm to our own health. But all of the water quality pressures affecting our rivers and lakes, excess phosphorus, is actually the most common cause of failure against the standard set by the Water Framework Directive. So we're talking specifically here about those nutrients in very mobile and very biologically active forms like nitrogen in nitrate and phosphorus in phosphate. They're essential elements, it's important to say that. So the growth of pretty much every organism on the planet, including us, requires those elements. Our DNA has got both nitrogen and phosphorus in it. Although there are actually a few weird and wonderful examples of some ancient single-celled organisms that can swap out phosphorus for arsenic when they have to under really extreme environments is pretty fascinating. But basically all life on Earth needs nitrogen and phosphorus, so they're only pollutants really where there's too much of them in the wrong place. And I think that's a little bit more difficult to explain sometimes than, for example, the presence of E. coli from sewage that can make us sick. Um, what
0: are the sources of these excess nutrients?
2: So, the reason that we have too much N and P in water is because of both the permitted and the non permitted release of effluent from wastewater treatment works. There are leaks from septic tanks, runoff of fertilizers and manures that are used in agriculture, and also there's input from some industrial processes. But the absolute core problem really is that these substances have been so valuable to us particularly in agriculture that we've worked out how to add more and more into our natural nutrient cycles so for example through industrial fixation of nitrogen from the atmosphere to make fertilizers which is also really carbon intensive and by mining phosphorus from rock so basically we've unbalanced our element cycles in a really big way and fertilized the planet so Globally, we think that we've approximately doubled the amount of reactive nitrogen that's available in this biologically active forms, which is a a massive increase. And at the same time, we're really wasteful with it. So some places and some agricultural systems are more efficient than others, but globally, as much as 50% of the nitrogen that we use in agriculture, for example, to improve the productivity of crops, never even reaches the plants. And that's a really expensive waste.
0: It sounds like a really big issue, but we don't hear that much in the news about nutrient pollution. Do you know why that is? What do you think?
2: I think you're right. And arguably, even though we've unbalanced the nitrogen cycle even more than we have the carbon cycle, and we routinely hear about the impact of carbon, it's not talked about so much. And I think that is because it's more difficult to explain, So especially if you've got bad memories thinking back to school and studying the nitrogen cycle and all those terms like, nitrification and denitrification and ammonification. And I genuinely also think that that's a reason for some of the political tensions in that area where there's not enough basic understanding in government of the behavior and impact of elements to make the right long-term decisions. Uh, The UN are aware of this issue. They've even released a slightly questionable song in 2019. Perhaps we'll put the link in the show notes to try and raise awareness of their work promoting the sustainable management of nitrogen and just to tell people that it's a thing that we should be concerned about.
0: So what is the nutrient neutrality approach?
2: There are several areas of policy and initiatives to try and promote more sustainable use of nutrients and to minimise their impacts on the environment. So in agriculture, for example, we have nitrate vulnerable zones. Specifically, we're talking here about new developments such as housing, in catchments that may already be stressed, and that new development puts extra pressure on already vulnerable protected sites. The approach taken in England, nutrient neutrality, so in a nutshell, if you're a developer in one of the 27-odd catchments that are identified as being particularly at risk, then to get planning permission, you need to demonstrate that your development isn't going to be putting additional nitrogen or phosphorus And in some catchments, it's either or, and in many catchments, it's both into the water. Inevitably, because we poo and wee and we use detergents that contain phosphates, then any new development has the potential to send extra nutrients either straight to rivers through surface flow or via already stressed wastewater treatment plants. So the first step is to try and quantify the potential new inputs and Local authorities in affected areas provide nutrient calculators that you can use to do that online that are based on the number of new houses you're proposing and the residents that are going to be living in them. And then the developer needs to work with ecologists and other specialists to try and satisfy the local authority that they've taken steps to prevent nutrients from reaching water. For example, through activities on site, like making sure we're using sustainable drainage systems, And then where extra nutrients are unavoidable, they need to propose mitigation to ensure that there's no net increase in nutrients in the catchment. So that type of mitigation can include shorter and longer term actions like the creation of wetlands and woodlands, the use of artificial constructed wetlands, and the planting of riparian buffer strips alongside watercourses. It's also possible for developers to purchase nutrient credits that fund mitigation elsewhere but within the same catchment so that we're trying to reduce the quantity of nutrients that are reaching those protected sites. Uh, So Natural England and other organisations like the Wildlife Trusts and land agents and owners have been looking to acquire sites that can be used for habitat creation to reduce nutrient inputs elsewhere in the same catchment and then sell credits that developers can buy.
0: Okay, well that sounds a little bit confusing and I'm sure I'm not the only one. Can you give us an example of this?
2: Sure. So to get planning permission, a developer needs to work out how much extra nitrogen and/or phosphorus their development is going to be putting into the catchment, and then they need to propose suitable avoidance and mitigation. They might not have the space to do that within the footprint of their development, especially if it's in an urban area, and considering, for example, that as it develops, it can take half a hectare of new woodland to mop up the additional phosphorus produced by two houses. So instead, developers can buy these nutrient credits. Currently, one nitrogen credit under Natural England's scheme for the Tees catchment for nutrient mitigation costs £1,825. So if your development is going to be putting three kilograms of nitrogen into the catchment, then you would have to pay just under £5,500 to mitigate that. And then that money funds the creation of habitat that can absorb nutrients as it develops. And can be managed to meet multiple objectives relating to biodiversity. So, also considering carbon and well-being, and that provides one funding model to help support restoration.
0: Why did the government try to ditch nutrient neutrality then?
2: So, the main problem is that it takes time to identify and establish suitable sites for mitigation. So, they have to be in the affected catchment. Demand for nutrient credits where these are needed has been, in some cases, outstripping supply. So the government has argued that this has slowed the building of new homes. And at the end of August, they proposed amendments to the leveling up and regeneration bill. And I quote, to no longer require the consideration of nutrient flows from urban wastewater as part of Habitat's regulations assessments. So basically, the government feel that house building is being held back by defective EU laws and that the new approach is a a Brexit bonus. Basically, the amendment they proposed would require local authorities, when they're making decisions around planning, to assume that developments won't damage protected sites on the basis of this input of nutrients. And that's often despite their better judgment, their own knowledge of their catchments, and they would even be obliged to ignore any evidence that suggests otherwise, including evidence provided by the government's own advisors in Natural England. It was a really disappointing announcement, especially given how much effort the local authorities and others have put into researching and and implementing mitigation measures. And as members of Wildlife and Countryside Link, we joined other organisations in expressing concern that this is really carving away at the habitats regulations and also places a burden on taxpayers rather than enforcing the polluter pays principle. So then things got interesting. And An influential voice also expressing concern was the government's own watchdog, the Office for Environmental Protection, whose chair wrote to the secretaries of state for levelling up housing and communities and for environment, food and rural affairs, saying that the proposed changes will reduce the level of environmental protection and amount to a regression. And that's something that the government have kind of been consistently promising that they wouldn't do. The OEP said that the government hadn't adequately explained how alongside this weakening of environmental law, new policies will ensure that we still meet our objectives around water quality and the condition of protected sites. It's been a bit of a roller coaster, undoubtedly influenced by comments by the the OEP and and also by the widespread outcry from environmental groups. Labour led a rebellion in the House of Lords and actually voted down the proposed amendment. So, Shadow Minister Nick Thomas Simmons said that the government had put forward an entirely bogus dilemma and not to pretend it's a choice between looking after our environment or building more houses because it isn't.
0: What do the government want to do next, so will nutrient neutrality continue in its current form
2: Because of the late stage at which the government tried to introduce the change. it can't try again in the House of Commons now it's been defeated in the Lord so. Ministers will need to bring any new proposal forward in a new bill and the government have already responded by issuing a statement saying that nutrient neutrality, the delays it's causing to housing delivery and the wider need to restore waterways remains a government priority and the government will make further announcement about next steps in due course. So it's one to watch and actually the government are right on one point nutrient neutrality isn't the full solution. We need to wean ourselves off an over-reliance on these nutrients in some of our processes, and we need to use them less wastefully. So just like net zero approaches for carbon, we need mitigation right now, but we also have to stop inputs at source. Given the kind of precipitous decline in biodiversity that we've been highlighting in the State of Nature report, I just don't trust the proposed investment in wastewater treatment by 2030 is going to be effective enough to negate the need to act now so for me they're complementary approaches and it's not one or the other i also think we have a real opportunity through nutrient neutrality to help fund nature recovery particularly through identifying opportunities for wetland and woodland creation and also to drive and force more widespread adoption of sustainable nutrient management practices and Just like with BNG, any significant changes or delays are really frustrating, and not just to us as ecologists and environmental managers, but also to the developers and landowners who have been embracing this as an opportunity to innovate and to do the right thing for nature.
0: Is there anything that we can be doing at home to help?
2: We need to keep the pressure on. Practically, there are some things that we can do. Uh, We can all help a bit to reduce the surface runoff by protecting soils in our gardens and by keeping plants in the ground that absorb nutrients, avoid using paving and other impermeable surfaces in, in the garden that, you know, that make the ground more, more flashy. We can also take steps to reduce the amount of nitrogen and phosphorus that our activities are causing to be added to the environment. For example, by choosing a more plant-based diet that's more nutrient efficient, by buying organic food, where it's more likely that nutrients used in its production have been recycled from elsewhere, and also by swapping to eco-friendly brands of detergents that are lower in phosphates. There's an impact of some of those choices on our wallets, and we shouldn't necessarily have to make all of these decisions ourselves in a cost-of-living crisis. So manufacturers, for example, of dishwasher tablets, which seem to represent a particular issue, must know the impact of their products on the environment and they should be changing their formulae rather than relying on improved water treatment downstream that is then paid for by us as taxpayers. So we need to do what we can as individuals and also for us as a professional body, we need to be really vigilant for any future attempts at weakening environmental legislation for political gain. And there are some positives through this because we like to focus on positives particularly seeing the the strength of people's reactions to the perception that environmental legislation would be reduced, and hopefully also a general increase in awareness of some of the issues relating to nutrient imbalances.
0: Thank you so much, Mark. That was such a big deep dive into nutrient neutrality. I'm sure we're all experts now. So, as always, we are going to end on our positive news segment. So, I was delighted to hear that the golden eagle numbers in southern Scotland have soared to their highest in centuries, thanks to the pioneering conservation efforts of the South of Scotland Golden Eagle Project. So, five years ago, only three breeding pairs remained in the area when the project began but now numbers have risen to 46. So that's amazing. And this is a particularly exciting bit of news for SAEM as well, as the South of Scotland Golden Eagle Project won the 2022 Saim Best Practice Stakeholder Engagement Award and the Tony Bradshaw Best Practice Award at our annual awards last year. It's great to see them continuing their brilliant work with this project. And congratulations to all of them um, who were involved in this project. Mark, do you want to share your positive news story?
2: I spotted one that's a bit further afield in Brazil, but this is news of the, the rediscovery of a species that had been thought extinct for 186 years, or 186 years ago was the last time it had been seen, as part of an initiative to try and rediscover missing species. So, this is a species of small holly tree called Ilex sapiformis, which is also known as the Pernambuco holly. It was um, feared to have been extinct, but thanks to the efforts of researchers in an urban city area exploring through the region, it's been um, spotted. The researchers uh, spotted its tiny white flowers. And although it's in an urban area now, it used to be rainforest. And a member of the expedition said that it was like finding a long lost and long awaited relative that you only know by old portrait. So That's fantastic news. And the hope now is to um, perhaps find some more individuals and establish a breeding programme to resurrect its chances.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of Nature in a Nutshell. Please don't forget to go ahead and rate and review the podcast and we'll see you next month. Bye.